Thank you for tuning in to 103.5 WPVM, the progressive voice of the mountains. You're listening to Veterans Voices, a show by veterans, about veterans, service members, and their families. I'm Jason Hurd. And I'm Kendra Phillips. And today we'll be speaking with acclaimed author, political activist, philosopher, and linguist Noam Chomsky. But first, a bit bit about Winter Soldier. This past weekend, I attended Winter Soldier, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, The subtitle of that event is Eyewitness Accounts of the Occupations. Winter Soldier came from um, something that Vietnam veterans against the war did back in 1971, and they called that Winter Soldier. And it was a public investigation uh, regarding war crimes and atrocities committed by U.S. forces during the Vietnam War. Uh, There was three days of testimony. It happened at a hotel in Detroit. Um, And it was the changing moment for the anti-war movement. From that point on, uh, it gained a lot more momentum, and it uh, energized the GI resistance movement during that time. Winter Soldier Iraq and Afghanistan sought to uh, mimic that spirit, but also do something different. Um, Due to the age that we live in, where we have all sorts of digital media capabilities, this time around, testifiers were actually able to give photographs and videos of evidence to uh, back up their claims that they were making. I showed up there on Thursday afternoon, and as soon as I walked in, I was greeted by literally hundreds of veterans. Um, And I was fortunate enough to be on the first panel at Winter Soldier. Uh, It was a panel concerning the rules of engagement and how our forces have broken those rules. It was truly emotionally disturbing at times. At others, it was uh, uplifting to know that other individuals had had seen the same things that I had saw uh, and felt the same way about them that I had felt. Um, Overall, Winter Soldier had 55 panelists uh, testify during those uh, four days. Uh, However, 150 individuals were verified to testify, and their testimonies will be available on the IVAW website. That's IVAW.org. Um... One of the most emotional moments for me uh, was when a man by the name of John Turner, who was a former Marine, spoke about his experience in Iraq. He walked up in front of the crowd, had a dress shirt on and dress slacks, um, and had his medals pinned on his chest. He sat down, and the first words out of his mouth were, There's a saying, once a Marine, always a Marine. But there's also a saying, eat the apple, F the core, I don't work for you no more. And at that point, he ripped off his medals and threw them out into the audience, and uh, he caught uh, a lot of applause for that. But he went on to talk about some of the horrible things that he had seen in Iraq and committed in Iraq. He showed photos of himself doing Abu Ghraib-style um, uh things with dead bodies in Iraq. He posed uh, next to a dead body, smiling and grinning. Um, And it was so earth-shattering for me. Um, And it it was at that point that 
I had to get up and leave and, um, John's testimony brought home for me what I already knew, but it solidified it even more that this occupation is completely immoral. It is completely illegal. It is dehumanizing the Iraqi civilians. And it is also dehumanizing our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. They are put in situations where they're taught not to care. And then they come back and think about it and realize what they've done. And they have to live with it for the rest of their lives. So today we're going to be talking to uh, Noam Chomsky about Winter Soldier, about the GI resistance movement, and about the anti-war movement more largely. Professor Chomsky? Yep. Oh, wonderful. Noam? Yeah. This is James Lattimore, and uh, we have our own radio show now, Veterans Voices, so we're going to be on that. Uh, And it's just a small uh, local FM station with this kind of spotty reception in Asheville, but it's worldwide on the Internet, so you may be famous after we get through this. Okay, good. Or infamous. (laughs) Uh, We're doing a lot of things in Asheville this week to commemorate the fifth year of the Iraq War, and our our host today was at the... uh, uh, Winter Soldier event in Washington, D.C. He's going to lead off with that in a minute, but I just wanted to let you know some of the things we've been doing today. We were reading the names of all the dead soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. We were standing out in 30-degree cold and uh, took about six or seven hours to do that. We organized a blood drive, and UNCA students are walking out of class Thursday and a bunch of stuff like that. So we're active. We're Need a little inspiration from your voice, your voice of honesty and integrity is something we always value. And so I just want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Happy to be with you. Glad to hear what you're doing. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to back off and then I may be able to come back in and ask you a question or two if I have time. But I'm going to turn it over to Jason Hurd now, who's uh, founder of the local chapter of Iraq Veterans against the war, and he just got back from Washington uh, for the Winter Soldier event. So, yep. uh, Jason, you're on. Hey, Noam, how you doing? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing very well. I, I wanted to start by saying, uh, you know, I, n- I know that your wife is going through some difficult times right now, and I'd like for you to give her my, my best wishes. Sure thing. Thank you very much. And I appreciate that. No problem. Um, so, you know, I, uh, I got a chance to go to Winter Soldier, this past weekend, and uh, I'm I'm a member of Iraq Veterans Against the War, and I, I testified on the first panel uh, at that event. Um, first of all, did you get to watch any of the Winter Soldier testimonies, and if so, uh, did anything stick out in your mind? I, I haven't been able to watch them, but I'm familiar with it. I went through it last round, <laughs> and I'm sure it's no different. It's what wars are like. <laughs> Um, I, I I would like to ask you uh, one question about it. Um, at Winter Soldier, it turned out that we were one of the number one stories in the entire world. BBC World picked us up. Al Jazeera picked us up. Uh, NPR picked us up. Um, however, uh, a few mainstream media outlets, uh, Fox News and CNN and the New York Times, to be exact, decided not to cover us at all. Um what are your thoughts about the mainstream media uh, 
deciding not to cover Winter Soldier and, in effect, trying to silence the GI resistance movement? The best answer to that was given by George Orwell a long time ago uh, in something you probably never read, which is the introduction to a book that I'm sure you did read, uh, namely the introduction to Animal Farm. Uh, Animal Farm, everybody reads in school, but nobody reads the introduction uh, for one reason, because it wasn't published. It was found later in his unpublished papers. Uh, Animal Farm is, of course, this satire on this totalitarian monster. And in the introduction, which was unpublished, uh, Orwell says, uh, well, things in free England aren't all that different. He said in free England, it is very easy uh, uh, to suppress unpopular ideas without the use of force. And then he gives a bunch of examples, and then he gives uh, two sentences of explanation which are you know, short, inadequate, but to the point. He said, first of all, the press is owned by wealthy men who have every reason not to want certain ideas to be expressed. And the other is that uh, if you have a good education and you're you know, part of the elite culture, you just have instilled into you the understanding that there are certain things it wouldn't do to say. Okay probably correct and that's I think the answer to your question uh, they uh, the press is controlled by sectors of power they're basically huge corporations and there are certain things they don't uh, closely tied to the government and there are certain things they just don't want expressed and beyond that it's just uh, kind of instinctive you know that there are certain things it wouldn't do to say uh, I had to the other day, uh, there was a front-page story, or a major story, in the New York Times by their senior correspondent in Iraq, uh, John Burns. And it opened by describing how he and his fellow correspondents were you know, standing somewhere in Baghdad and watching the first day of the bombing, you know, the spectacular first day of the bombing. And he says, uh, here we were, at these... Uh, uh, hard-bitten journalists uh, dedicated to a code of impartiality. Did you ever watch the coverage of the first couple of days of the bombing? It was it, like cheering for the home team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's their code of impartiality. Yeah. But that's what they think. That's what's instilled into them. And they're very honest. It's, I'm sure he was being quite honest. Impartiality means cheering for the home team. Yeah. And if there are things that conflict with that picture, well, you just don't run them. Now, this brings up a good point because you're one of your more famous uh, things that people uh, attribute to you is you say that um, the the mass media manufactures consent. Could you could you go into a little more bit more detail about what that means? Well, actually, that's it's not original with me. I borrowed that phrase. Ed Herman and I borrowed that phrase from uh, Walter Lippmann, who was the leading figure in 20th century. Uh, media and also a leading public intellectual, a major theorist of democracy, uh, a progressive, a kind of a Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, Roosevelt, Kennedy progressive, uh, and uh, one of the most influential thinkers of, in this, these areas in the 20th century. And he, he was on a propaganda commission during the First World War, the uh, Committee on Public Information, it was called, which of course meant Committee on Public Disinformation established by the government to drive to try to drive a 
fairly pacifist population into to becoming, uh, you know, fanatics who wanted to destroy everything German. And they were pretty successful, and he was impressed by that. And he wrote that uh, there's a new art in the practice of democracy, namely manufacture of consent. Uh, yeah. And then he went on to extol it as to how important it is. And it's based on a theory of democracy, which still prevails. The theory is that in a democracy, the population are supposed to be spectators, not participants. Uh, they're not, they're, they are not supposed to have an influence on policy. And the reason which uh, Lipman explained, well, I'll just give you his words. Uh, the reason he said is that the population are ignorant and meddlesome outsiders. And we responsible men who know how to make policy uh, we have to be protected from them. He put it more graphically. We have to be protected from the trampling and the roar of the bewildered herd. And the way we do that, that's the population. So they just are outside. We don't pay any attention to them. They don't influence policy. Uh, and we do the things that are right. Uh, and we do try to manufacture consent. That is to get them to consent to what we decide is right. And we try to control their attitudes uh, you know, turn them into consumerist freaks so they don't bother with uh, serious affairs. You know, just stay home and mind your own business. We'll take care of things. And you see that all over the place. I mean, take the you know, take the elections that are taking place right now. I mean, majority of the population, take, say, Iran, okay? The next big dangerous confrontation. Uh, the world the world is appalled at the idea that the U.S. might attack Iran. I mean, one leading British historian, uh, Gurley Barnett, says, okay, that's World War III. You know, that's uh, way beyond anything we've had. And a lot of people feel that. Well, what are the American people? Every candidate, every single candidate, uh, says that we have to maintain the threat of war against Iran. That happens to be a violation of the U.N. Charter, but the U.S. regards itself as an outlaw state. Laws don't apply to us. So every single candidate says, we have to keep the options open, we have to maintain the threat of war. What does the American public think? By a large majority, by about three to one, the American public thinks we should not have any threats. Uh, we should enter into uh, normal diplomatic relations with them. But that's not an option. The public are ignorant and meddlesome outsiders we don't even have to we don't even have to refute their position we just disregard it and it goes on like that do you think we're gonna bomb iran i think as far as i can tell you know the military the top military brass seems to be against it i presume that's why uh, admiral fallon resigned uh the uh, intelligence community seems to be against it i Again, I'm presuming that's why they released the National Intelligence Estimate uh, in December, uh, saying that Iran doesn't have any weapons program. Uh, the world is against it. The American population is against it. But that doesn't seem to make any difference to George Bush. Well, that's the problem. Uh, Bush and Cheney, uh, everything, if you look back at their record for eight years, just about everything they've touched has turned into a total disaster. Uh, the economy's collapsing, Katrina, you know, the Iraq is a total catastrophe. Uh, just run through the list. Everything they've touched 
has turned into a disaster. Uh, they may decide, okay, we'll sort of hit the whole system with a sledgehammer and see if we can pull anything out of it. But no, why do we tolerate that? Why do the American people tolerate that level of incompetence? Well, they have, it's uh, a good question. They, the American people have, they don't like it. Like if you look at polls, people, large majority of the population says Congress doesn't represent us, the, you know, the executive doesn't represent us, but uh, people are scattered, separated, atomized, uh, Life is pretty hard for them. It's worth remembering that we've been through 30 years, uh, which is the worst period in American economic history for a majority of the population, 30 years in which real wages have stagnated for the majority. Uh, working hours have gone up, benefits have gone down, and most households, you need two working parents. Uh, uh, work hours are way beyond other industrial countries. Uh, Things like medical care are out of reach for much of the population. Yeah. And people just don't, you know, it, that has a disciplinary effect. I mean, you're trying to keep things together. You know, can't put energy into trying to uh, organize uh, to, but the organization and activism takes work. Yeah, uh, you, you know, I don't have to tell you that. You know it better than I do. And, to, and, and that requires a, a kind of... Uh, you know, it requires dedication, and that's yeah. that's difficult. And people are also isolated. Like the main forms of organization that have existed in the past have pretty much been dissolved, like unions. Uh, unions used to be, a, they didn't weren't only there to raise wages. They were a way for uh, ordinary people to get together, uh, to uh, think through things, to, you know, they were they were educate each other and oneself and right. become involved in various kinds of uh, uh, activism. Listen, let me ask you one more question, then I got to back off because Jason's the host here. And I'm okay. getting in his way. But what about Jefferson's little rebellion? Are we ever going to have a little rebellion? I mean, Jefferson talked about the necessity of a little rebellion that he every put it every twenty years. years. Well, and yet, there's something about American culture, a life that dampens the enthusiasm for rebellion or the impulse for rebellion of straightening things out. Well, you know, there, we have to be realistic about this. I mean, Jefferson, I think, was kind of throwing, was kind of like a throwaway line. Uh, he was saying we should, shouldn't be too complacent about things, which is okay. We shouldn't be too complacent about things. But a rebellion is feasible. It's even meaningful. Only after the large majority of the population has come to believe that nothing can be achieved by reform. If you can't get anywhere by reforming the system and uh, the small groups that hold power are going to resist by force, well, that's a revolutionary period. But there's nothing like that here. The fact of the matter is we can achieve things through reform a lot. We could get medical care, which is the primary concern for most people. We could get a viable economy. We could pull out of Iraq. We could keep from bombing Iran. In fact, we could do the things that most of the people, population wants through uh, within existing institutions. Well, we what can't it requires. Get a lobbyist. Well, it's, see, the, you can't hire lobbyists to compete with uh, the business roundtable. Yeah. But the general public, when it gets organized, can push through significant 
uh, achievements. I mean, take, say, you know, the, the achievements of the 1960s and the aftermath, uh, the so-called great society measures, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, Environmental Protection Agency, uh, 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 Voting Rights Act, I mean, there's women's rights. There's quite a series of them, which changed the country a lot. Uh, they didn't come from lobbyists. They came from large-scale, dedicated, popular organization. And the same is true if you go back into earlier years. Uh, Social Security, uh, uh, the uh, uh, workers' compensation, uh, health and security, uh, health standards industry. I mean, they're not maintained very well, but they're there. Uh, and they're there because uh, of the public uh, public activism forced them to be there. Okay. And that could be true today, too. Okay, I'm going to go throw myself off the cliff now so I won't get in Jason's <laughs> way anymore. <laughs> Professor Tomsky, um, there's a new statistic out about media covering the Iraq War of 50% less this year than they did last year. So there's an obvious uh, concerted effort to keep the public in the dark about the ongoing occupation. So what can the anti-war movement do to counter the apathy and to inform the general public? kind of thing you're doing. I mean, actually, there's a reason for the decline in coverage. As far as the media are concerned and uh, the political candidates and the elite culture in general, there never was any principled objection to the Iraq War. So, for example, when, say, the Russians invaded Afghanistan or uh, Chechnya, or uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Uh, we didn't object to it because it was a strategic blunder, to quote us, uh, Barack Obama, or because they were getting into a civil war that they couldn't win, to quote Hillary Clinton. Now, that's not the objection we had to it. The objection we had is that aggression is a crime, even if they can win. Uh, but th that's never been the elite objection to the Iraq War or the Vietnam War. The objection has been what's called pragmatic. If we can get away with it, fine. Uh, in fact, wonderful. It'll show how great we are. If it costs us too much, well, too bad. then we then maybe it was a mistake. I mean, you know, you found that in, uh, in Russia too during the invasion of Afghanistan. Well, there were plenty of people. In fact, I wrote in the Soviet press that. This was a mistake. It's costing us too much. Uh, we can't achieve our goals at a proper cost, so maybe we ought to pull out. Uh, that's not a principled objection. All right, now coming back to the decline in coverage, well, it's related to the picture, largely illusion, but partly correct, that the cost to us is declining. So you look at the uh, 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 deaths of American soldiers, well, yeah, it's declined. I mean, for Iraqis, the place is a complete uh, catastrophe. In fact, it may never survive as a country. But, uh, you know, not our business. Uh, it takes, say, the sectarian warfare that's driving the, that's destroying the country. I mean, the way it's portrayed here is, well, these crazy Arabs kill each other. That's not the way Iraqis see it. I mean, the Pentagon just released a big study of Iraqi opinion. Uh, Iraqis blame it on us. They say the uh, invaders, the U.S. government, is responsible for the sectarian warfare. Well, yeah, that's right. Uh, there is something called the Nuremberg Trials, uh, which established the principle that uh, aggression, invading another country, is 
the supreme international crime differing from all other crimes in that it encompasses all of the evil that follows. That means in Iraq, uh, the original aggression encompasses all the horrors that followed, uh, the looting, the torture, the sectarian warfare, the uh, suicide bombing, and so on. That's part of the original crime. Well, that's the way Iraqis see it. They ex- we claim to uphold the Nuremberg Tribunal principles, but we don't. They do. They accept our values. We don't. And that's something that we ought to be concerned about. But now getting back to the decline in coverage, since we don't accept our values, or at least elite elements don't, uh, then uh, when the cost to them seems to be declining, it's not that important. I mean, it's like, uh, say, take in Russia right now. Let's take the their war in Chechnya, which has been going on right now. Uh, they committed horrendous crimes. Uh, the capital city of Grozny looks like Fallujah. You know, it was mostly destroyed. There were crimes all over the place. It was very similar to our invasion of Iraq. But they've pretty much succeeded. They now have a government run by Chechens, of course, basically a puppet government, Russian force in the background. Uh, They're reconstructing. Uh, uh, Grozny is described as a booming city with a lot of building, electricity is restored, water is restored. I mean, by our standards, we ought to be cheering Putin. Of course, we don't still considered a crime but when if we could if Petraeus could reach that achievement in Iraq they'd be praising him for a marvelous achievement just as the Soviet Russian elite is praising Putin we can see how grotesque this is when we see others carrying out this behavior but it's very difficult to look into the mirror and uh, uh, judge yourself by the same standards that's not easy that's why the Gospels, which people claim to believe in but don't read, uh, that's why the Gospels define the hypocrite uh, as the person who can see the other person's faults but not his own. Dr. Chomsky, I'd like to thank you very much for being on our show today. Uh, I hope you'll consider being back on a, a, again sometime soon. Sure hope so. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah. Bye. And now for our art segment with Kendra Phillips. Kendra? I'm going to read today from Warrior Writers. This is the second version of this they have put out. Um, This is titled Remaking Sense. The title of the one that I am reading is Food, Water, and Revolution. And it is by Fernando and Maria Braga. Katrina didn't burst the levees. I think it was the system we live in. I call it capitalism. But they put blacks and lantitos in prison and send the poor to Iraq. Now there's not enough troops for the state to call back. Bodies are floating, but not enough are revolting. The stench of dead children smell like the streets of Baghdad. Corpses stacked in the streets, zipped up in black bags. The black gold of the Middle East lets you capitalists thrive, while poor blacks in New Orleans rot in the streets and die. You sent troops to free Iraqis from the blood of their veins. You sent troops to liberate Afghan skulls from their brains. You sent troops to bring peace to Fallujah with your jet bomber planes. And troops can't stop a hurricane, but the deaths are insane. You sent us to New Orleans, but you waited four days. We marched through the streets, and we received our orders. When threatened shoot to kill, 
But we saw the horrors. Stank toilets overflowing, no running water, women giving birth to kids in dark hospital corners. You apologists for the bosses claim the wreckage was nature, but your scientists knew the levees would fail us. You could have rebuilt marshes, had fifty years to maintain them, but you turned your back on the poor, and you still claim you're making us safer. You don't care about workers, you care about making the paper. We make everything, you control our wealth. You turn our labor into your profits, forsake our safety and health, not that your dollars would ever go to ourselves. You poured billions into Bourbon Street, stadium, ports, and pumping oil wells. You don't care if the poor drown floating in their shacks, just another genocide, like you're doing in Iraq. And like you did with the slaves, over one million drowned in watery graves. Now we're in a war where you protect us from terror. United we stand, like we're all in this together. Just trust the government. Do what you say. Thousands drowned with no relief. Survivors rotted away. You militarized streets to protect empty stores. Instead of rescue, water, food, you spend money on wars. I've come to realize I should expect nothing less. Katrina wasn't a mistake, just capitalism at its best. Some might wonder why I criticize the U.S., but everywhere I look, capitalism caused this mess. Under this system, workers get no relief. You pit our class against ourselves, women and workers of color. You recruit us into armies to fight our sisters and brothers. You fund political Islamists to create suicide bombers, to give birth to terrorists like Osama, Saddam, and Congress. You say fight for your country to serve and protect, but we just serve you and your banks. You collect the checks, we collect the dead. You order me to kill for your business, but I refuse, and I'm not the only one. Katrina lit the fuse. We've multiplied and organized, and we're planning your doom. There's two classes and one earth. That's just not enough room. Every worker that survived can see the ways of your system. Elderly, babies dying from no air conditioning. Not enough are ready to fight, but tens of millions are listening. And what would have happened if we would have seized their buses, led every poor person to safety, if troops refused orders, said, Screw this, we ain't killing poor people just like this, blasted off the bosses, turned their dollars to dust, if every poor worker in the Superdome picked up planks, knives, and chromes, raising the flag, screaming, The Red Cross ain't our solution. We need food, water, and revolution. You are listening to Veterans Voices on 103.5 WPVM, the progressive voice of the mountains. I would like to thank our special guest today, Noam Chomsky. And as usual, I'd like to thank you, our listening audience. If you have any questions, comments, or would like to be a guest on our show, please contact contact us at vetsvoices at yahoo.com. As usual, I'm Jason Hurd. And I'm Kendra Phillips. And until we bring our brothers and sisters home safely, we remain yours in peace. <laughs>